Welcome to Call Your Hits, a Storm Riders Airsoft podcast. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Today, it's just me in the studio. Pat and I have been extremely busy in the lead up to our event, Operation Last Refuge 2, which is happening this weekend. Um, Between this event and just life in general, it's been a challenge for the two of us to have time to connect and record and just prepare something for you. So I just wanted to throw something together really quickly for you and not leave you hanging for this week. So what I thought I'd do today is to go over some of the steps that Pat and I have followed really getting ready for this event, uh, some of the tools that we've used, and how we're balancing gameplay, mechanics, missions, and so on. So let's really get into it, and hopefully this gives you a better idea of what planning this event has been like, especially as we are nearing the, um, the start of the game. So as we mentioned, I think, in previous videos, Operation Last Refuge 2 is the first big airsoft event that has been hosted in our community in many years, with the last one having been hosted by us, I think, in 2018, maybe 2019 at the very latest. And it was Operation Rhino, I think, which was uh, actually held at Red Cliff, uh, RIP Red Cliff. Um, and it was an asymmetric warfare kind of scenario. It was super fun, really great event. Um, and I think that's the last uh, operation game that we actually hosted in our community. So, I mean, it's, you're talking about like five years ago at, at the very least. And the original Last Refuge, I think we talked about this, this was hosted in 2014, so almost 10 years ago. And almost none of the people uh, who were at the first game, with the exception of the Storm Riders team or some of the members of the Storm Riders team, actually will be attending this one. So this is going to be a brand new experience for most, if not all, of the people who are actually participating as players. Um, we wanted to create, you know, nonstop missions, role-playing, props, etc., to give a lot of the members in our community their first experience, or for many of them, a first experience with something similar. Um, we also wanted to provide an opportunity for strategic thinking, but also mixed in with some levity, you know, that makes players not take themselves too, you know, too seriously, basically, and just have fun with it in addition to really think about how are they going to try and achieve their various objectives on the day of. Um, we also, as we've mentioned before, our community is quite small, so we wanted to make sure that the event was appropriate and accessible to everybody, whether it's returning players, beginners, renters, young, old, doesn't matter. Um, because our community is small, the more gated we make the experience, the less people we can actually hope to get uh, at that event. Our pool is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So as of time of recording, we have 35 players confirmed, along with 10 game staff and role players. Now, depending on where you live, that might not seem like very many people for an event, especially when you compare it to some of the larger events in some places like in the States and in Europe where you have hundreds and hundreds of players. But for us, having 35 players plus... 10 volunteers, right, who are also players, is actually a very reasonable numbers. I would have liked to have 40 or 50 players registered, but understanding that we have 10 of those players actually running the game and being villagers and stuff, um, you know, 40, 34, 35 is, is a pretty, pretty reasonable number. 50 would be a bit of a tall order. 
one of the big challenges for us actually has been to find commanders, which is a bit disappointing. Uh, in the past, many players have been just chomping at the bit to be a commander. Um, I've had lots of people message me in the past for other games. They're like, oh yeah, I want to be commander. I'm like, you've played like four games of Airsoft. There's other people who are probably more well-suited, more well-experienced, more well-established in the community that would make for a better choice. This time, it's been the complete reverse. Nobody has messaged me or any other game staff looking to be a commander. So in fact, it was up to me to reach out to several parties to ask them, hey, would you be interested in being commander or one of your team members? Would you be, uh, would one of your team members be interested in uh, being commander? And so far, only one has agreed. So we've got Alex, uh, who is going to be our blue team's commander. And I'm so grateful for him agreeing. You know, Alex is a guy who's been playing Airsoft for many years. Uh, he's been a part of our community. He's a super nice guy. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's a really friendly guy. Um, and I know that it's his first time doing something like this. But on the flip side, I know he'll do just fine because he gets along with everybody. He listens to people's opinions and he also has a good time, a smile on his face. He's attending. He's attended some of our training events in the past too. So I, I'm really thrilled to have him to have him be the blue team commander. We still don't have a commander for red. And I mean, that's really, that's all you can really do. So I will likely be picking a, or I will definitely be picking a commander on the day of for red if nobody... Uh, you know, reaches out to me uh, in time. But it's really too bad that nobody has really shown a lot of interest in being commander because the role of commander is something we've worked really hard to make fun and diverse while still being an active participant. So at our event, the commanders are not going to be sitting in their FOB all day, controlling their players, looking at their squads, etc. Like they will be engaging with the role players. They will be playing the game and engaged in fights and all this kind of stuff. So Unfortunately, what this means for the blue team and the red team is that the blue team commander has received his mission briefing um, sometime last week or the week before. I can't remember precisely when. And that contains information that only the commander has access to. And the same thing can be said of the red team. Nobody on the red team has seen that player briefing, which means that if there's any preparation they wanted to make ahead of time to think about how they might organize themselves to complete some objectives that only the commanders are aware of, well, they won't have that. So they're going to have to make the adaptation on the fly, whereas the blue team commander will have had multiple weeks to think about it. So unfortunately, that's, the, that's their loss for red. Now, in terms of the actual game organization, Pat and I, I think, have chatted on air about the gameplay mechanics versus the roleplay mechanics. Um, and this is where we have like a points-based system, victory points to decide who sort of wins the, the overall game. But there's also the roleplay dynamics. And I think I mentioned in the past that I had done both. And it was a lot for one person to manage, to manage the role players and the commanders and the missions and the point tallying and all that kind of stuff. So Pat and I decided to split it up. Pat is a really accomplished, um, you know, game master for tabletop role playing games. So this type of thinking works really well for him. Uh, so it was very easy for me to just say, hey, uh, why don't you take this and you take that portion and I'll focus on the missions and the points and the coordination and all that stuff. But I wanted to give you a bit of a peek behind the curtain on this because I think it is really important, especially if you're trying to organize a game for yourself. So number one, we wanted to organize a game that gives you know, at least on paper, uh, equal chances to both sides. So what we mean by this is that all the points that can be achieved, all the opportunities that present themselves are mechanically balanced on paper. So no one side will get freebies just by virtue of which side they are, where they started the game, etc. 
when one team gets an opportunity to earn points for a mission, for example, the other team will get a similar opportunity. So at the end of the day, the achievable points total for either side should be the same. Now, obviously this works just fine on paper, but in practice, teams will have different opportunities as a result of how they succeed or fail on the day as well. So certain missions may become easier or harder, and that is as it should be, rewarding clever play or effective strategies and planning from the commanders and so on. So for instance, imagine if we gave both teams a mission to locate and recover like a package or something. We would place the package equidistant between both teams' respawns right? That keeps it fair. However, if one team is dominating on the field, then obviously it will be easier for them to retrieve the package from wherever we've hidden it. The other team will have an uphill fight to get it from behind enemy lines if that's where it's located, but that's not unfair to them. They would have had the same advantage the other team had if they had controlled more of the field instead. So that mission rewards a team that has been more active. Now, we have no idea who that's going to be, so mechanically on paper, that mission is balanced. And on the day of... The players may or may not get that mission, and if they do, well, they might find themselves with an advantage that they have earned for themselves, rather than it's just been given to them by a piece of paper. So my goal was to create missions that were fun and balanced while still giving the commander a choice of how and if to complete them. But I also couldn't do this in a silo because Pat is creating this whole narrative in the village. And so I wanted the missions to reflect what was also happening in the role-playing space. So for example, if one team likes the... Um, if the villagers like one team more than the other, that might lead to particular missions while the other team would get something different. And in order to do that, I needed to coordinate with Pat to make sure that we were both planning the same things or things that worked off each other at the right time. And as I mentioned before, Pat is the one who's responsible for all the role-playing, all the villager storyline, etc. And so the best way that we could find to line up our timelines, aside from just talking about it, which certainly does help, but is to create a collaborative document on a shared space in the cloud. So we used Google Docs, right? And I created a timetable in a spreadsheet with each hour of the day broken down into 15-minute segments or 30-minute segments, depending. And then I went and I would put in my stuff with one particular color code, and Pat would put in his stuff with his particular color code. And then we could look and see how things were lining up. Okay, well, I want to issue this mission, but this role play thing in the village, it makes more sense if it occurs before then. So then we can look and actively work on these documents simultaneously to make sure that things are lining up and make logical sense. Um, it's really difficult to overstate how important this is. This spreadsheet is going to be our single source of truth for the entire day. At any point in the day, we can look at our watch and we can look at the spreadsheet and we should be able to know what the next thing that should be happening is. What should we be getting ready for? So if you're planning an event, I, I, I can't stress this enough. You can't skip this step. It is a critical step. There is so much stuff that can happen on game day lots of moving parts, teams are in their own things that you don't expect, players showing up late in the middle of the day, like what do you do with that, dealing with the field owners, dealing with the field marshals, dealing with response, all this kind of stuff. And having one document that contains all the information that you need to run the day, 
is going to mean that things can happen quickly and easily. And you can very quickly and easily determine what needs to happen next, what you should be ready, getting ready for, regardless of whatever curveball was just thrown at you. You can very quickly go and say, okay, it's 11.15. This situation is being managed, but I need to get ready for this thing. So very, very important step. The other thing that we have done is we've created separate documents for all the in-game information that is available. So like rules, events, missions, etc. And everything is outlined and scripted in their own documents as well. So if we're looking for something in particular that we know because of the timetable we should be getting ready for, we can go simply bring that up and reference that relevant information. So as an example, for my missions that I've created as the HQ missions, I've included every single mission broken down by the name of the mission, what time it's going to be assigned, who it's going to be assigned to, how many victory points it's worth, if any. And then I've included the mission details, so what the team has to achieve. And I've also included a short script that the HQ team can read to the commander to brief them on the mission details. Why is that important, you might ask? Glad you asked. Well, the reason it's important is because if anything happens on the day of, and I am not there to read the mission, I know what I wanted to say, so I can just wing it. But if someone isn't is taking filling my shoes for whatever reason, right? Maybe I'm not feeling well, or maybe something happens that I'm dealing with, and someone looks at the clock and goes, "Oh, a mission is supposed to be issued right now." Whether it's Pat or somebody else in my stead, they can quickly look at the mission and simply just read what it says there, and the commander will get everything that they need. So this is um, in my line of work, and we call this standard documentation or standard work. And it's really, really helpful to make sure that we are we know exactly what the next thing that we need to deliver is. And so having the script there for me is super, super important. On the flip side, for Pat and for his villagers, he's created simple role cards for each player that indicate what that particular player's role is. Either it could be a normal villager or something special. So for a special role, as an example, there could be something very simple that is your role is the liar. Then if you get that card as a role player, you know that you're the liar. And that means that you just need to lie about everything. Everything you say is a lie. Someone asks you a question, you lie. Someone asks you your name, you lie. Someone asks you where something is, you lie. That simple. If your role is village idiot, then you pretend to be extremely smart when actually you're very, very dumb. You think you know everything and you actually don't know anything. And this is slightly different than lying. It's just you're very cocksure about your approach, but you are totally wrong. So if you say, oh, it should be easy for you to do this, it actually might be the most difficult thing that you ask the team to do, right? All of these things, again, are tracked in one document so that if there's any question about like, oh, hang on, what is my role? Well, here is my role card. And if someone's asking you, hey, well, you know, what is your role or you, I need to fill in for you for whatever reason, there's the role card. This is what you need to do. One of the other critical aspects to games like this is that there's a lot of mechanics, there's a lot of things that are in play, and rules are very important. So yeah, we've got our safety rules and chronograph rules and you know bang bang and all that stuff that you likely have at your field too. But the gameplay rules are unique. They're not going to be like our regular skirmish rules because we are going to use buddy aid, we're going to use painkillers, we're going to use props, etc. So it's really, really important that the players be aware of the rules. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone hands me a five-page document and says, here are the rules, read them, I may not read them, and or that might not be the way that I learn the best. On the flip side, maybe I do love reading rules, uh, and personally, I do love reading rule books, but that's that's just me. So what we did is we did 
two types of rule briefings. We created a rule briefing document, like a two or three page document that contains all the important stuff that you need to know. And we also created a video rule briefing. So if you don't want to read the rules, you can have someone read the rules briefing to you. In that case, me, me read the rule briefing to you. We're also going to be doing a safety brief and a rules briefing before the game, both at the night, at the event the night before, the chronograph the night before, and the day of for people who missed it. But by having the rules briefing ahead of time, you can hear the information one time. And in fact, if you watch the rules briefing and then you read the information a second time and then you attend the rule briefing the third time, you will have heard the rules three times. And so the likelihood that you will have absorbed what you've heard is actually much higher, right? So we all know the rules about calling your hits and all that kind of stuff. But what is the situation when you've already been hit and you've been bandaged and you get hit a second time? Can you call a medic? We don't want people confused about that. They should know. You've, you, if you've already been bandaged and you get hit, you are KIA. You go back to your respawn, right? We want people to know that right off the right off the rip then not have to think about it, not cause confusion. And the best way to do that is to reiterate the rules multiple times and give people plenty of opportunity to familiarize themselves before they hit the field. The other thing that we did is we created sim um, briefing packages for each commander, as well as briefing packages for the volunteers. Again, this is all about standardizing the information that's out there, making sure that everyone has ample time to familiarize themselves with the gameplay rules, the mechanics, et cetera, especially the commanders, or in this case, the commander in singular, because we are also gonna be relying on the commander to be a little bit of a staff person when it comes to enforcing gameplay rules with his team. We mentioned this before, uh, and we mentioned in the rules briefing, when we have reported war crimes, so rules infringements during the game, we will be working with both of the commanders to make sure that they address them with their teams because commanders and teams will be deducted points for war crimes that are reported. So it's in the commander's interest to make sure that their team is playing by the rules. And it's going to be important for them to be a part of that um, to make sure that they are addressing any concerns as they rise up. Now, that being said, in our community, we I have to say, um, and in a lot of communities uh, around the world, just talking to our people on our Discord, Airsoft communities are great. Like you, if you go on YouTube and you see like cheater videos and that's how you consume Airsoft, you're going to think everyone who rocks an HPA is a cheater. You're going to think everyone who's got a bolt action and a ghillie suit is kicking Mustang, shooting kids in the face or whatever. And that just is not how Airsoft is in general. And specifically in our community, we have a really great community where players don't tend to cheat. They don't, they tend to call their hits. We have very honorable players in our community. That being said, having an event changes things a little bit because now people might feel like there's something on the line. So you want to be very clear around what the expectations for the rules are so that nobody is sort of left out in the lurch. Nobody uh, is confused about what is what counts as a hit, what doesn't count as a hit, all this kind of stuff. And in fairness, we will have, you know, myself and Pat, as well as two frontline employees, and we will have uh, a, an indeterminate but large number of villagers all of whom can act as game staff if it requires it by players just going up to them and saying, hey, out of character, I have to report a cheating issue or war crime issue, whatever, right? So we will have more eyes on the field than ever, ever before. So if people really do want to cheat, we're going to catch them. We're also going to have photographers and drones. So we're definitely going to catch them. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure that, you know, people are aware of that and that they have that added incentive to play by the rules by not wanting to lose points. So... 
the uh, one of the last things I want to mention is, you know, when you have volunteers for a game, you should think about how are you going to thank the volunteers for their time. Uh, and so we have a couple of things planned for our volunteers as a bit of a thank you for the time and the energy that they're going to they're going to do. This is an important step. Don't skip this. It's the easiest thing you're going to do. Be there to provide water, be there to provide food. Don't make them provide those things for themselves. Right. If you're asking them to bring stuff. So for us, we're asking them to do outfit changes. So we are going to ask them to bring like spare clothes or whatever. But if they don't, we're going to have spares that they can wear and they can throw on, whether it's a bathrobe or whatever else, right? So just be considerate of your volunteers, be grateful for the volunteers time and energy that they're giving. And you know, if they can only give you half a day, they can only give you half a day. And that's, you know, it's thank you very much. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, and, you know, really rely on their creativity and their their ingenuity to flush out the roles in the world that you've created. Finally, and I think perhaps most important for us in our planning in terms of the amount of effort that we would need to exert was field preparation. So we wanted our field to seem slightly different and gameplay to feel a little bit different than a regular skirmish. So we have rules and stuff that is going to shake this up. But the night before the game, we're actually going to be hitting the field to reorganize some of the field. So move some pieces of cover around, board up some windows with cardboard, block off certain entrances to make them impassable, uh, put up random stuff around the village, so like camo netting, tarps, posters, whatever. Anything to breathe a little variety into the gameplay. And to be honest with you, a little goes a long way. Even like putting up a tarp in a place that typically there's not a tarp and now you've got like a sheltered area. That's new. It's like, okay, what's going on here? It gives the feel a different vibe. You know, our village field, for example, is typically very easy to just walk into. But for the purposes of the game, the entrances are going to be barricaded. It's going to be walled off. So that as well is going to create new gameplay challenges for the players. And this is all things that, you know, take time. It takes organization. Um, so if you are trying to shake things up on the field, shake things up at a game, perhaps, one of the things I hardly recommend is change the field a bit, move some cover around, move some pieces around, board some stuff up, make certain things unusable. If you've played at your field a lot, like we have, we know what the clear avenues of attack are. Make them crappy, make them deliberately not good anymore by changing the cover, by making them more vulnerable, or conversely, take certain other areas which you know are not good avenues of attack and make them good avenues of attack by blocking off um, you know, points of domination where players can just sit there and hose BBs all day from cover. Block those off, bar them off, put some cover there, put some tape there. Um, this is something that we're going to do extensively to make sure that our players are having to think on their feet, quite literally, uh, and adapt to a new situation that they will never have seen the village in this con con configuration before. So that's a couple of things. The last thing I want to leave you with is when you have a game that has a lot of role-playing elements, it's really, really helpful to have one particular color that is designated as the out-of-play or out-of-character color. So for us, it's going to be yellow. Yellow tape, yellow armbands, yellow caution tape, anything that has that color yellow, we are instructing our players to completely ignore. It's like it does not exist. If you see a person walking with a yellow armband, you do not talk to them. If you see a piece of cover that has yellow tape on it, you do not use it. It is like it is not there. And this is really important because by having one unified color or one unified symbol or whatever you want to use, one code that everyone can look at and go, oh yeah, 
I'm not supposed to interact with that. It's if it's like um, an ammo crate and it's got yellow tape on it, they know do not touch that. And then you as game staff can then figure out, okay, well, when I want them to interact with that, I can just go and remove the tape off. Or if I'm a villager and I need to go do an outfit change and I need to do it quickly, I can put on a yellow armband and then nobody's going to ask me any questions unless it's an emergency uh, while I've got that yellow armband on, right? So it's making it very clear that certain things are out of play out of character, and that players are not supposed to interact, touch with, talk to, or otherwise use in any way. That way you make sure that people are observing the rules and nobody gets confused. It's like, oh, this thing had yellow on it. I didn't know what to do. No, if it has yellow on it, you leave it alone. That goes, you can use that for anything as well, whether it's pieces of equipment, whether it's, you know, like if you have a drone taking pictures, for example, you might put a little bit of tape on it. So people are like, oh yeah, right. I'm not supposed to shoot at the drone. It's not in play, all this kind of stuff. So that's an overview of some of the things that we are thinking about going into this event on Friday. You know, you're listening to this on Wednesday. Um, by the time you listen to this podcast, I will likely be even more run off my feet uh, than I am right now trying to figure out and balance out the rosters, uh, trying to coordinate with the field um uh, the, the field manager to make sure that we have everything that we need, that we have the staff in place, uh, that people are going to be there to be able to take money and take waivers when when we show up um, and all of that stuff. Friday night is going to be our pre um, our pre event safety brief and chronograph. We have some um, seal uh, seal tape or tamper proof tape that we're going to use to seal up AEGs and HPAs to make sure that players aren't tampering with them. And if they show up the next day and the tamper seal is broken, then they have to re-chronograph anyway. Uh, so all of these kinds of things will make sure that we are trying to have as good as uh, and as quick of a morning as we can because the game starts at 9 a.m. sharp. Uh, and we don't want to miss a single minute of play throughout the entire day. So in order to do that, we want to make sure that everyone is showing up nice and early, that people are hitting the field as soon as possible, um, and that we can blow the whistle right at nine, and the vast majority of players will already be on the field by then. So we're very, very excited. Um, we're looking forward to it. The pictures, the videos, we're going to be doing lots of videos, lots of pictures uh, of the event Um I've got a, a GoPro with a battery bank. I'm going to be wearing basically all day. Um, so you'll really be able to get a, an insider's view into how this event went. I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. Um, but until that time, uh, that's all I've really got for you. I know it's been a shorter episode today. I do appreciate your your time. Uh, hopefully you found this interesting. Make sure you leave us a comment. Make sure you join us in the Discord if you want to hear more about the event. Once the event is done, we will be sharing a lot of this documentation uh, that we use to plan the game, including our templates, including our missions, etc., on the Discord with our users. Um, so if you're interested in that and you're interested in running your own version of Operation Last Refuge, you'll be able to do that as well. It's not going to be behind a paywall or anything. It's just here you go. If it helps, uh, if it helps you, then we're, we're we're grateful for that. So that's all we really got for you today. I'm looking forward to the event. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it next time. But until then, that's all I got for you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.